Tonight, we are beginning our verse-by-verse exposition through the book of Jeremiah. Two weeks from now will be our 22nd anniversary as a public church. And in those 22 years, we have never gone verse-by-verse through the book of Jeremiah. We've gone verse-by-verse through just about every other book of the Bible. We're working our way through the Psalms. But Jeremiah is the longest Old Testament prophetic book. And even though we have made reference to it repeatedly, we have never just gone through it verse by verse and looked at it. But now, with the amount of Israelology that we have done, with the amount of Old Testament history that we have done, I think we're finally ready to look at Jeremiah and we can understand it in its historic context and in its prophetic context and we can understand the influence that it has on the New Testament writers. Jeremiah is born around 655 BC. Best estimates are that he died in Egypt around 570 BC. You're probably conscious of the fact that Jeremiah is the anglicized version of the name. The Hebrew version of the name would be Jeremiah. That Yah that you hear at the end there is the shortened version of Yahweh. It is the name of God. So it means appointed by God, or it means Yahweh will raise. Some people say it's Yahweh will exalt, or Yahweh is high. Any of those adjectives, those descriptors for God, works for the name Jeremiah. Now, this is the same prophet, Jeremiah, who wrote the book of Lamentations. He had a 40-year prophetic ministry. During those 40 years, he was right. He was hearing directly from God, and he was saying things that God would have him say. But he couldn't get anyone to listen. Among my preacher friends, it's common to point to Jeremiah, and people will say, 40 years he preached and never had a convert. That's a way of encouraging, that's a way of encouraging you, George. 40 years he preached and never had a convert, and yet, there's no question that he was correct. He was hearing directly from God and saying what God told him to say, but the people of Judah just would not hear it. Now, one of the things that he is very good about is that he tells us exact dates, exact times when he is prophesying. And so we know exactly when he was talking and what he was talking about, and we see many of the prophecies of Jeremiah fulfilled in Jeremiah's lifetime. Jeremiah is all about the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the transport of the people of Israel into Babylon. And then he continues his prophetic career as they are in Babylon. And he tells us that right at the very beginning of the book, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests, who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Anathoth in the land of Benjamin 
is a mere three, four miles away from Jerusalem. It's a suburb of Jerusalem. If you woke up in the morning in Anathoth and looked out, you could see Jerusalem. You could see the temple on the hill. It was less than a day's walk to get to Jerusalem from there. What we'll also discover as we're going through Jeremiah in chapter 32, we're going to see that he also owned land there in Anathoth. So he was a long-term resident of Anathoth, but he could get to Jerusalem quite easily. Therefore, he had access into the king's chambers because he was the son of a priest. For most of his ministry, he's accompanied by a scribe named Baruch. You're going to see a lot about Baruch in the book of Jeremiah. It is apparently Baruch that wrote the vast majority of what we're going to read The book of Jeremiah kind of vacillates between uh, narrative, its storytelling, and then interspersed among the storytelling are these prophecies. So we not only get Baruch commenting on what happened to Jeremiah in his life, how he was mistreated, how his prophecies were accurate, how they came true, but then we also hear the prophecies themselves. As we're going to see right at the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, he's given a very specific directive from God that the prophecies that he is going to bring forward are going to be for the tearing down and the pulling up of Jerusalem. And unfortunately, most people who preach Jeremiah use him as further evidence of the notion that God is done with Israel. Because, after all, he rooted them up and he tore them down. But then at the end of that exact same directive from God, God also says, and you're going to build and you're going to plant. And one of the key passages of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, part of that building and planting story, is the new covenant. The promise of the new covenant is in Jeremiah 31. That is the covenant that is the guaranteed promise of a future for Israel. We talk a lot as Christians about the new covenant. We are saved by grace through faith because of the new covenant. But the new covenant is made specifically, you can read the language, it's made specifically with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Because all of the covenants in the Bible All of them are made with Israel. You can't find one that isn't. And then in Hebrews 8, the longest verbatim quote from the Old Testament transported into the New Testament, that new covenant is repeated in order to demonstrate the superiority of Christ, of his blood, of his covenant, of his promises, And it is yet again quoted accurately as being for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah. Interesting that it's in a book that is a Hebrew, writing to Hebrews, hence the title Hebrews. So whether we're talking Old Testament or New, we're still seeing the continuity of the fact that the New Covenant is all part of the building, planting, reestablishment of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We are then adopted into that covenant. We, by grace, as Gentiles, 
are introduced into that covenant, and that becomes the methodology through which we can be saved by the Jewish Messiah. But all too often, people seem to think that just because we Gentiles are now introduced into that covenant, that God, for some reason, decided to give up on the very people he promised the covenant to. So it's important in reading Jeremiah to understand what his directive was. It is for the tearing down and the rooting up of Judah in particular, and the fall of the temple, and Judah being transported into Babylon and staying there for 70 years. That's all important. Now, Jeremiah is also a contemporary of guys like David. In fact, the prophecies of David and the 70 times 7 is based on the fact that Jeremiah says that Judah is going to go into Babylon where they're going to be for 70 years. And at the end, toward the end of that 70 years, Daniel even tells us that he knew that number because he was reading Jeremiah. And based on knowing the number 70 years, he prays to God, just keep it 70 years, it's coming to an end, just keep it. And an angel responds to him and says, now I'm going to tell you what's going to befall your people. And he tells him 70 times seven. Well, that entire very important Old Testament prophecy of Daniel is based on things we learn from Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is essential in order to understand Old Testament prophecy and Israelology. The era in which Jeremiah lived was one of transition for the ancient Near East. The Assyrian Empire, which had been dominant for the last two centuries, declined and fell. Its capital, Nineveh, was captured in 612 by the Babylonians and the Medes. And Egypt, for a brief period of time, had a little bit of resurgence under their 26th dynasty. We're talking about 664 to about 525 BC. But it didn't prove itself strong enough to establish an empire. So there was this new world empire rising up into the vacuum there in the Middle East, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the new Babylon, which was ruled over by the Chaldeans. And of course, its first king you probably all can name. It's Nebuchadnezzar, if in fact you can say Nebuchadnezzar, which is just a fun word to say. Originally, Judah was just a small, comparatively insignificant state, and it had been a vassal state of Assyria. And so when Assyria declined, then for a short time, Judah asserted its independence. And then subsequently, Judah made leagues with both Babylon and Egypt because they didn't know which of the two was ultimately going to become the most powerful there in the Middle East. But ultimately, they became a province of the Babylonian Empire. Now, the next thing that Jeremiah tells us is the date stamp. While this is happening politically in the Middle East, he's going to tell you exactly when he was prophesying the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of Yahweh came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, 
in the 13th year of his reign. Well, that's very, very helpful because we know when Josiah, now by the way, Josiah was the last of the good kings that the southern kingdom Judah had. But as a consequence, we know that he began his prophetic career around 627 BC, 626. That would be the 13th year of King Josiah's reign. And then his prophetic career over the next 40 years lasted through Judah's last five kings and even beyond that. So, like I've said repeatedly, it's about a 40-year prophetic career that he has. Verse 3 tells us, It also came, the word of God, came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So he's giving us real specific date stamps. The 11th year of Zedekiah, that would be the last year of his reign. And during that period, the 11th year of his reign, he was made a prisoner by the Chaldeans in the fourth month of that year. And then the carrying away of the inhabitants of Jerusalem into Babylon happened in the fifth month of that same year. So we're talking about 586 B.C. Well, fortunately, Jeremiah and Baruch gave us all of that very specific information, date stamps, so that we know that this is all taking place, for the most part, just before the transport of the children of Israel into Babylon. Now, that's going to help us. The reason I'm driving all these points home is because that's going to help us to understand the prophecies of the book. They have to do with impending disaster for Jerusalem. It has to do with their rebellion against God, their chasing after gods of their own hands, their own idols, and God is angry at them. Jeremiah, because of the lamentations and because of his pleading with the people, you're going to see he even uses visual aids. I mean, he does everything he can to get attention and get people to listen to him, and the people just won't Pay attention. And he knows what's coming. God has shown him and told him what's coming. And he knows it's really, really bad for the people. He knows judgment is coming for Jerusalem. And he can't get the people to listen as he's telling them judgment is coming. Now, that is one of the major themes in the Bible. Judgment is coming. For Jerusalem, judgment was coming in Jeremiah's lifetime. The Chaldeans were coming. They were going to be taken into Babylon. That was going to happen right away. But even Paul on Mars Hill, his message to those on the Areopagus there was that God had chosen a day and a man by which he was going to judge all mankind. That message of judgment is coming is essential to the Bible. It's essential to the message that God is telling his people. So whether we're saying Old Testament people under the law who had the revelation of God of how they were supposed to behave themselves or whether we're talking about the New Testament 
we're still talking about the same God. We're still talking about the same expectation, the same standard, the same morality, and we're still talking about the same judgment that's coming. Sometimes that judgment is temporal and immediate, like in Jeremiah's case for most of it. Sometimes it is ultimate judgment at the end of the age. But judgment's coming. That's the message that the Bible preaches over and over again. And for the life of us, no matter how many times we say it, how loudly we say it, how many times we publish it on the internet, no matter how many verses and passages we point at and tell people, repent. God tells all men everywhere, repent. Nevertheless, people just don't want to hear that judgment is coming. It's kind of like the day and age in which we live, isn't it? Because here we are telling people God is real and judgment is coming. People don't care. They're busy. They got things to do. So, Jeremiah tells us exactly when it is that he is prophesying so that we can understand the prophecies of his book, most of which have to do with impending judgment from God The people don't want to hear it. They don't want to be bothered by it. They don't want to be interrupted by it. They're going to persecute Jeremiah for saying it. They're going to deny that he is actually telling the truth. And yet, for 40 years, he's right. Proven by the fact that, in fact, Babylon did conquer Jerusalem, that the temple did fall, that Israel, that Judah in particular, that they went into the Babylonian captivity. All of that is evidence that Jeremiah was right. So being right, our first principle from the book of Jeremiah, being right doesn't necessarily mean you can get anybody to hear you. Being biblical, saying what God says, doesn't guarantee that anybody's going to hear you. People have hard hearts, and people are depraved, and they don't want to hear righteousness and holiness and judgment. Those are biblical messages that people just reject. Now, says verse 4, Now the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, and I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. We looked at that just this past Sunday because as we've been going through the book of Galatians, we saw where Paul, in defending his apostleship, said that God had chosen him from the womb and had separated him to the ministry he was called to to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so on Sunday, we went back to this very passage here in Jeremiah and compared the two. Because here again, whether we're talking Old Testament, whether we're talking New Testament, you have declarations from the prophets of God that they were where they were doing what they were doing because God had not only interrupted their lives, revealed himself to them and put them into the job, into the work, into the ministry that he assigned them, but they both say, and this was the determination of God from the beginning while I was in my mother's womb. And of course, the importance of saying, while I was in the womb, God made this determination is to demonstrate that the prophet, the person, 
Paul, Jeremiah, had nothing to do with it. They were in their mother's womb. And while they were in the womb, they were not making decisions. They were not making life plans. They were not determining that they were going to be prophets, that they were going to go preach to the Gentiles. In fact, Paul's determination, once he was born, the way he was raised by his Jewish parents, he went off and became a Pharisee. He became a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was persecuting the church. The last thing he thought he was was a chosen apostle to go preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. But once God revealed himself to Paul, Paul then recognized that this was the determination of God since the beginning, since he was in his mother's womb. And Paul is also the one who uses the language that God wrote down our names in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. So both Paul and Jeremiah conclude that they were put into the ministry because God made that determination from the very beginning. So they had no choice in it. Consequently, they had to go do what they had to go do. Jeremiah was persecuted terribly for carrying this message into Judah. Paul was persecuted terribly for carrying that message of salvation through faith. He was persecuted by the Jews. He was persecuted by the Gentiles and the Romans. So the message of Christ in the New Testament, the message of God, the message of judgment, the message of righteousness, the message of repentance, just ain't popular in the world, whether we're talking Old or New Testament. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated or separated you. Now, if we can say that's true about Jeremiah, and he says it is, And if we can say that's true of Paul, and he says it is, can we extrapolate from there that God knows everybody and makes that kind of determination where everybody is concerned? I would argue the answer is yes, because the Bible also says, known unto God are all his ways from the beginning. And so if that is true, and if God is absolutely sovereign, And if everything happens according to the will and the good pleasure of the sovereign who is demonstrating his own grace, if that is all true, then we would have to conclude that absolutely nothing happens in his universe that he didn't determine to have happen. Therefore, if you know anything about God right now, it's because God determined that. And when did he determine it? When you were in your mother's womb. And when did he write your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life? Before the foundation of the world. So is it any surprise that you're here now? I don't mean here in this building, although I do kind of mean that. I mean, is it any surprise that you're a Christian today? Because it was as a result of the determinant will of the absolute sovereign, which is why today You care about the things of God, and you know the things of God, because he determined these things before you got a choice. That's why Paul, in the book of Romans, writes about Jacob and Esau, two twins in the womb. And then Paul makes the point. They hadn't done any good. They hadn't done any evil. 
but so that God's election by grace would stand, it was said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. That was determined in the womb. Okay, well then, I think I could say very biblically, consistently, that Luann is sitting here today loving the things of God because God determined while she was still in her mother's womb that she belonged to him. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. By the way, that word knew is the same word that is used in Genesis for Adam knew Eve and she conceived. So it doesn't mean he knew stuff about her. It means he had an intimate relationship with her. Same idea here. God is saying, while you were still in the womb, I had a relationship with you, an intimacy with you. I was choosing you. I was separating you. I was consecrating you to my work because I didn't just know stuff about you. I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I have appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And then Jeremiah said, good plan, God. No. No, he argues with God. We see this so frequently. Human beings, once they realize who they are and who God is, I mean, it's like Isaiah saying, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I certainly can't talk to you. I have unclean lips. So then I said, alas, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm young. I can't go in front of a king. I can't go be a prophet to the nations. I'm a youth. And God says, yeah, you're right, never mind. That's not what it says. But Yahweh said to me, do not say I am a youth because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. God does not leave it open to Jeremiah's opinion. Instead, he says, I'm giving you my word, and you're going to say it. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because he's God. And you don't get an opinion. And you don't get a choice. And you don't get a determination. God tells you what you're going to be, what you're going to say, where you're going to live, how you're going to be. That is all God's determination. And you don't get to argue. Do not say I can't do it. I am a youth. Because everywhere I send you, you will go. And all that I command you, you will speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now, notice that it is God who brings up the whole, don't be afraid, I'm going to deliver you. That implies there's going to be trouble. That implies the people are not going to enjoy what you have to say. And they're going to resist you. And they're going to fight against you. But don't worry about them. I've got your back. 
You just do what I told you to do. Go and say everything I've told you to say. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord stretched out his hand, and he touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Amen. It's kind of like John seeing scrolls or Ezekiel eating the scrolls that were sweet in his mouth and bitter in his belly. This same idea that God implants his word into his prophets. Once again, notice the centrality and the importance of preaching God's word. God didn't just say to Jeremiah, go preach. God didn't say, now Jeremiah, go whip people up in an emotional way and preach to them and make them feel good about themselves. And he didn't say that. He said, I'm going to give you the words. Amen. You go say the words. And here he says, I put my words in your mouth. Now those are the words you're going to go tell the people. They're not going to like it. They're going to resist it. But you say it. So then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to do two things. To pluck up and to break down and to destroy and to overthrow. Wow, big assignment for a kid. Your words that I tell you to go say, those words are going to be prophecies of utter destruction. You can see why the people would resist it, why they would hate it, why they would persecute him for saying it. Because he's going to bring them prophecies that are appointed by God to the nations, to the kingdoms, in order to pluck them up in order to break them down, in order to destroy them, and to overthrow them. But he didn't stop there. He also said, and to build, and to plant. So the prophecies of Jeremiah are about much more than just the destruction of Jerusalem. It's also about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the restructuring the replanting of Jerusalem, which is why there is so much language in Jeremiah about the long-term restoration and ultimate kingdom that belongs to Israel and David's greater son and to Judah and the kingdom to come. Because it's not just about destruction. It's about protection. It's about restoration. It's about redemption. And it's about a new covenant. Okay, so then God puts Jeremiah to a test. Now that God has said all this to him, it's almost like God is going to say, uh, now let's see if this process is working for you. <laughs> the word of the Lord came to me, says verse 11, saying to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? So Jeremiah is going to have a vision. He's going to see something. And he's going to report to God what it is that he sees. And on the surface, it seems like a kind of negligible thing. Because he says, I see a rod or a branch of an almond tree. What an odd thing. 
What you need to know about the almond tree is that the word that is translated almond also has at its root the idea of awakening, revival. Because it was the first tree in the Middle East every spring that would bud and would bring forth fruit, bring forth almonds, as a consequence, because of the wordplay between almond and awakening, it was known as the awake tree. And so this first vision that Jeremiah is seeing and reporting back to God seems to indicate, oh, I see it. I'm aware of what you're telling me. And he says, I see a rod with an almond tree. And the Lord said to me, that's correct. You, you see well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. What an interesting thing for God to say. He says, okay, I sent you a vision. Then I asked you what the vision was, and you got it right. That means you're seeing it. And now I want to tell you the same way that I have given you my word, the same way that I'm going to continue to give you my word for the next 40 years, I want you to go out and say it. Only say what I tell you to say because I am watching over my word and I will perform every bit of it. And as I said, in Jeremiah's lifetime, he does see the fulfillment of several of the prophecies that God tells him to go and announce. And that's kind of the end of the almond tree thing. So it seems to be like a test where God sends him his first vision and then says, what you seeing in your vision? And he says, I see an, an awake tree. I see an almond tree. And God says, good, that's right. You see it. Now that you see it, remember that whatever word I give you, I'm paying attention to it. So go and preach it because I am going to hasten to perform it. So that was his very first vision. It was like a trial. Verse 13, he gets another vision. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. What is the land? The land is Judah, the promised land, the land of milk and honey. There is an evil that is coming from the north that is going to break forth on all the inhabitants of that land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they will come and they will stretch each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all of its walls round about and against all the cities of Jerusalem. Okay, so here is going to be the first incursion of armies that are going to come against Jerusalem and finally conquer Jerusalem. Notice that it is God who says, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north. God takes complete credit for it. Here again, I think it's necessary to emphasize, just like we did as we were talking about theodicy, that the good stuff that happens in life, that's God. And the difficulties, the trials, the problems of life, when they happen, that's God. This is the same God who says, I form the light, I form the darkness. 
I form the good and I form the raw, the trouble. King James says the evil of life. That's the same God. Here he is demonstrating that very character again by saying, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they will come and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Now that's very, very specific. They are going to set their thrones at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Well, in the book of Jeremiah, you even see the satisfaction and fulfillment of that very prophecy. It happens in Jeremiah's lifetime. Turn to Jeremiah 39 for just a moment. Jeremiah 39, and we're just going to look at verses 2 and 3. I was going to have either Tom or Micah read this. I was just going to call it out and say, here, read this. But knowing the names that are in it, it seemed like it would be cruel to just say to somebody, here, read this. But in the 11th year of Zedekiah, that's the final king of Judah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the city wall was breached. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came in and sat down. What a surprise. At the gate, Nergal Sarezer, Samgar Nebu, Sarsakim, the other guys with other names, and all the rest of the officials of the king of Babylon. So that verse right there is the satisfaction of God's second vision to Jeremiah. The first real prophecy that is given to Jeremiah includes that those kings of the north are going to set their throne in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. And then that is satisfied in Jeremiah 39. So Jeremiah is a phenomenally accurate book. Now, by the way, sometimes people will argue, well, now, wait a minute. Now, Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, that's to the east. That's not to the north. But the Babylonian Empire stretched its way to the north, and it was all the families of the north that God predicted, which meant the collection of the armies of the empire of Babylon, which typically, when they would come down to Jerusalem, would follow the Euphrates River from the north, come south, come across. So actually, they did end up, even historically, attacking from the north, because God understands a compass, and he understands direction. And it played out exactly that way. Verse 16, I'm nearly done. And I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness. So this is why God is judging the inhabitants of Judah. Because of their wickedness, which is going to be elaborated on at length in this book. Whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshipped the gods of their own hands, their own idols, their own creation. That's who they were sacrificing and worshipping. But they had abandoned Yahweh, the very God that brought them into the land, so God will take them out of the land. Verse 17, now gird up your loins, 
and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, lest I dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as of walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes and to its priests and to the people of the land. And they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you for I am with you to deliver you declares Yahweh. So here's this kid who's being assigned this particular prophetic ministry, and right at the very beginning, God tells him, and it's going to be rough. But don't be afraid of them. Go tell them what I told you to tell them, because I'm on your side. I'm with you through it all. That phrase, gird up your loins, means get ready for battle. It means, you know, when uh, Middle Eastern folk who used to wear things like togas, when they were going into battle, sometimes they would take their uh, excess material that was below their hips, and they would wrap it up into their belts so that they could run faster, so that they could be more effective in battle. That's what girding up your loins was. So God is saying... You're going to have to go into this fight, and it's going to be rough. But be a man. Gird up your loins. Get yourself ready. And despite the fact that they are going to hate you, they're going to persecute you, nevertheless, speak to them absolutely everything that I command you. That is part of their judgment, by the way. Part of their judgment includes the fact that God is going to be able to look back at them and say, I told you. I prophesied it. I explained it to you. You didn't listen. That's why you're being judged. Not only did you go your errant way, but you don't get to say, well, you never told me. Because not only did he tell them in his law, but he told them by sending them prophets continually who Jesus himself said, you killed all the prophets that were sent to you. They just would not listen. So that is your introduction to the book of Jeremiah. I've made you today like a fortified city, a pillar of iron and walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land, and they will fight against you. Now, if God could say that to young Jeremiah, knowing that the message he was going to preach was going to be one of judgment, and if he could say, even though it's going to be difficult, say it anyway, because it's my word, and I appointed you to this work when you were still in your mother's womb, I'm in charge here, Do you think he can still say to his church, can he still say to his preachers, preach the word, even if people don't like the word, even if people don't want to hear the word, God is still making us fortified cities. God is still making us like bronze and iron. God is still telling us, it doesn't matter. I 
will be your rock in your defense. I'll be your fortified city. But you go out and say what I told you to say, regardless of whether the world likes it or not. And far too much of the current church world has decided that they would rather dumb down what the Bible says in order to be popular with people. And the Bible has never, ever offered an instruction that says, make the word more palatable to people so that you can be popular. Instead, it always says, say what I say, preach the word. That's what it says in the Old Testament. That's what it says in the New Testament. I think we have our directive.